I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 95. Very exciting. Uh, not totally sure why. I, every time that it's a five or a zero, I feel like it's exciting. And we're five episodes away from 100 episodes, and it only took us nearly five years to get there. Very exciting. And we're not even there yet. So by the time we get there, it'll probably be about, about five years. So, um, all right. We don't really have any uh, announcements, so we're just going to get right into it. But we can't get into it without my co-host and the best friend I've ever had, Josh Long. Josh. That seems hyperbolic. Maybe to you. I mean, who are you to say? I choose who my best friends are. They don't choose me. Uh, that, that also doesn't seem I decide correct. who I will call my best friend. And you are the best friend I've ever had. It still seems a little over the top. How about just a just a just some guy I know? That seems accurate. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Fair okay. enough. Josh, I'm excited that you're here. Here's why. Why is that? Tell I'll me. tell you. Uh, okay. All right then. So He's anyway, it, d- d- Josh, so help me. Okay. If you weren't my best friend in the world. <laughs> um, okay. It's Christmas time. Sure. Christmas time is here. It is. And here's the thing. I love Christmas. You also love Christmas. Sure do. If I were to ask you your favorite band of all time, what would the answer be? That's actually a hard question. Are you wanting me to say the Beach Boys? Yes, it is that's one what of you my all... favorites. Yes. Okay. Uh, you usually say the Beach Boys uh, when I've asked you in the past. Not musicians, but bands. Mm, I don't know. You don't know that, that you've like... said that in the past. I do. That's why I asked in such a way that I assumed you would say <laughs> that one thing. I don't randomly assume people are going to say the Beach Boys. Um, but uh, so the Beach Boys have a song. That is a Christmas song that I hate with such unbridled passion. I love that song. Do you actually love that song? I'm assuming you mean Little Saint Nick. That's the one. Yeah, I love that song. How on... First off... I bought the album with that song on it because I was like, I want to be able to listen to that song every Christmas. (laughs) Here's... Okay, the song itself, typical uh, Beach Boys nonsense... Uh, where it's just like, hey, look, a song with absolutely no stakes. Uh, I'm joking, of course. The Beach Boys are much more than that. I've heard pet sounds. Um, but it is, the, that's the thing. There is a stereotype of the Beach Boys. <laughs> and that song is it. 
And the thing, the one that gets me, here's, there's a lyric in it I recently tweeted about. There's a lyric in it that every time I hear it, I want to punch a wall. (laughs) And the, the lyric is, Christmas comes this time each year. Yeah. That is maybe the most meaningless, useless lyric it's, I've ever heard. Tyler, it's truer than true. Oh, it's it's true, all right. I can't exactly. argue with that. I mean, it's fact. Yeah. But the thing that gets me, it's not Christmas comes but once a year. Mm-hmm. That's a different sentiment and one that I've heard and one that I'm okay with because that's a reminder. Hey, it's only once a year. So appreciate what, it. The problem, when I hear that, I wonder, but what time of year is it? Because it comes once a year, but I, I can't think of what time. But it doesn't even really matter. It does to me. I know it does. Yeah. But uh, hey, man, very you know, important. December 25th, we just pick, I don't know, pegging something. I don't even remember <laughs> what people say anymore. But um, but it, Christmas comes this time each year. Yeah, thanks, Beach Boys. Got it. Merry Christmas. Mer- I just, I hate it so much. And I can't even... I mean, you understand what I'm saying, right? Like, it's just a lyric that it, no, it is sounds, true and only true. Sounds it, wonderful. It to me. serves no purpose in the song. It's just, it's like if there was a song called "Santa Claus is Associated with Christmas." <laughs> like, that's you're like, if, I can't argue with the song, and yet I feel like maybe you're not helping. If you find that song annoying, the album has songs that are definitely worse, like. One's called Santa's Got an Airplane or something like that and is about, I guess he's flying an airplane and giving presents to people. It's, I like the Beach Boys and that's one that I skip over when I come to it. I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't listen to this. But you'll listen to, so they have a whole Christmas album. That's oh, what yeah. that's, okay. Yeah. There's some good stuff on there. There's some good original stuff and some good stuff that's classic. And here's the thing. Um, they don't do Silent Night, though, which I feel like... They don't do Silent Night? They don't, which I feel like they should, because that's one that lends itself to vocal harmonies, and that's their big thing. Yeah, but it doesn't lend itself to their vocal harmonies. It can. Nothing about them screams silent or somber. It can be. They have. You know, you know what? You know them better than I do. I do. Or maybe I know them better than you do. <laughs> one of them. I don't dislike the Beach Boys, but they, I mean... Sometimes they really would steer into the skid of what they, like, they're called the Beach Boys, that's how they sound, so I guess let's just do this, you know? There's a song about Christmas in Hawaii. Of course there is. Yeah. Where they get to say Melakalikimaka, because that's the fun. Yeah. It's the Hawaiian way to say Merry Christmas to you. It's not that song. I know, but they're working it in, I see. Yeah. Dean Martin has a great Christmas song called The Christmas Blues uh, that I know because it was on the LA Confidential soundtrack. Uh, but it's just a good song in, in and of itself because it's so sad, but not, <laughs> not the kind of melancholy sad that you and I have talked about in the past. It's the kind of sad where it's just like hyperbolically, comically sad. <laughs> like uh, there's a lyric I've taken the liberty of memorizing, maybe not the whole song, but a good portion of it. Mm. Um, uh, I've done my window shopping. There's not a there's not a store I've missed. But what's the use of stopping when there's no one on your list? <laughs> you know, uh, Santa may have brought you some stars for your shoes, but Santa only brought me the blues. 
Those brightly packaged tinsel covered Christmas blues. (laughs) (laughs) Who puts stars on their shoes? I don't know. I've heard that phrase before in various capacities, and I don't know where it comes from. Is it like rings on your fingers and bells on your toes? I don't know. Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Fair enough. That's from a song, too, though. What song is that? And speaking of Christmas songs, you know the, the Paul McCartney song? The terrible one? Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Yeah. I don't dislike that. I, I, the, the song is, to me, neutral. Like, it's, it, it, there's a festive quality to it. That one, I and feel so why like, do why do people hate it so? I feel like they hate it because it's too repetitive. It seems like it just keeps going, and that chorus just keeps going over and over yeah. again. To like, it happens. That, I'll bet you could do some kind of scientific study about like how much people are willing to take of something like that. Because I feel like if it were to be cut down, if there weren't as much of that chorus, or if there were mm-hmm. more verses or something like that, people would be fine with it. But it feels like that. Like when I think of that song, I think of it being that. You know what? Seven word refrain or whatever. Simply having a wonderful. Oh, it's five words. Yeah. Just over and over and over and over. Like it sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like they're trying to convince you of something. (laughs) It sounds like someone going insane at Christmas. Yeah. But Um, it does sound festive. Maybe it is the. It does. Because you're not the first person to say that it's just a terrible song. It's like. But if it didn't repeat so often, it, it would probably be a perfectly fine song. It might be fine, yeah. But yeah. Then there's the one that I hate that a lot of people still like, but the whatever the John Lennon one is called. Is it called I, Happy Christmas or So This Is Christmas? It's I only know like the op- the opening lyric, So This Is Christmas. And What Have You Done is the next song. Yeah. The next line. There are so many I'm I'm alone on this, but I tend not to like Little Drummer Boy, and it's because of the uh uh you know, rum pum pum pum, whatever. Yeah. I don't like. I never. I don't think I ever like it when people do like use vocals in in the place of like a musical instrument. Oh yeah, and I, like I know that's the lyric is rum pum pum pum, and it's just like you have, we have drums. Let's just incorporate a drum there. <laughs> but now we're just saying nonsense words. Yeah, in a song that's supposed to be like really touching, which I find it not to be. I'm not crazy about that one. Yeah, and I think we already talked about our our favorite ones. Uh, I don't know why, but I do like uh, "God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen." Oh, yeah? I enjoy that one a lot. I always like "Winter Wonderland" and "Sleigh Ride." Those are two of my favorites. How does "Sleigh Ride" go? Because that's the thing: the term "Sleigh Ride" works into a lot of songs. Yeah, I don't totally remember how does that one go. I can't, I'm not gonna sing. No, you can just mic. like maybe like whistle and you know slightly away from the mic. <laughs> oh, the spot I can't say. That's, is it? Da, 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 yeah, that's da, the one. Da, 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 da. Yeah, all right. It's a good one. That is a good one. Uh, yeah, There's the a, uh, the She and Him Christmas album is actually quite good. I should get that. I think I would like that. There's also a good version of it on the uh, Phil Spector Christmas album, hmm. which is it's before he was uh, totally crazy, or I yeah. guess murderously crazy, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's back when he was producing a lot of Motown artists and. So that's mostly what it is. It's like the Ronettes, I think, are on there. Yes, and I and the, one of their songs has like broken out and been like a really uh, popular Christmas song. But now I can't remember what it is. I think uh, it's. Uh, yeah, I think I know the one because I've heard covers of it recently. Yeah. Oh, well. 
But uh, listeners, hey, here's a fun bit of interactivity, right? I don't know. Uh, in the comment section, you can say, how about this? In each comment, you say your favorite Christmas song and your least favorite Christmas song. That's a lot of fun. That's fine. There are a lot of options for both. Oh, yeah. All you got, because I believe, I believe every place in the country will have one station that beginning in th- around Thanksgiving, maybe even a little earlier, mm-hmm. they'll start playing Christmas songs round the clock. Oh, yeah. And in some cases, that's fun. I, I do enjoy it from time to time. But after a while, it's like there really are only, I'm going to say, 15 to 20 that regularly get any kind of airplay. And so after a while, you just hear the same song and different versions of it, and eventually you'll hear a really insanely overproduced version that came out like two years ago yeah and it's just the worst you get the justin bieber little drummer boy is that such a thing oh it is oh boy don't google it you'll be sorry i'm not googling little drummer boy anyway yeah i do google justin bieber quite a bit though of course why wouldn't you he's famous he's yeah (laughs) are you famous guess not i don't have a version of little drummer boy that plays on the radio not with that attitude. No, I'm working on it. Um, okay, now then. Oh, uh, here's uh, an announcement. We're probably we're probably going to start this in the new year. Um, for the last for the last couple of years, when we release an episode, we've wanted to release it. Uh, we we've tried to release it uh, on Tuesdays, but I think we're going to push that. I think we're actually going to start releasing on Thursdays now. So. Uh, so this week's episode is going to be a Thursday next week. I think I'm going to try for Tuesday. We'll see how it goes. But, um, but yeah, so starting the new year, if a Tuesday comes along and you think, Hey, where's, where's my more than one lesson? I assume there are maybe 10 of you that think about that. Uh, just, uh, give it a couple of days and you'll get it on Thursday now. So just putting that out there. Okay. We're going to move on. It's always fun talking about Christmas. I always enjoy it. Uh, but we've got business to attend to. Sure do. All right. So, this week, we are going to be talking about, hey, one of the biggest movies of the year, if not the biggest. The biggest. From a box office standpoint. Oh. Uh, We are talking about The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, the second film. Mm Mm-hmm. It's directed by Francis Lawrence, written by Simon. Hey, you do me a favor. uh, Look and see how that is spelled, and uh, how would you pronounce that? I think it's Beaufoy. Beaufoy. It's either Beaufoy or Beaufoy. Right. I feel like Beaufoy. Yeah, I don't know. That's right. And Michael Arndt. Arndt. Yeah, I don't like either of those names. He's got one vowel at the beginning, and they just gave up. <laughs> yeah, it's like they they it's like the vowel is there just out of obligation. Hmm. Like they just wanted a bunch of consonants in a row. They're yeah. like, well, you can't have that. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so Catching Fire is uh, it's the second Hunger Games movie. Uh, I saw it fairly recently. I enjoyed it quite a bit i certainly enjoyed it more than the first film but we'll get more into that in a moment uh it's based on the book by suzanne collins which i have not read uh you read i believe the first hunger games book right yes i've read the first two and i've seen the first two movies oh okay so i'm caught up with book well i'm caught up with as far as the movies go fair enough so i'll probably watch i'll probably read the next book sometime soon and find out how it all ends oh my gosh and then i won't watch the last movie I'm going to assume they split up the the last movie. I'm That's sure what they do. To, yeah. I was just kidding. I will watch the last movies. Yeah. 
I will too. I it's yeah, like the, that first film is not terrible. There are a lot of things in it I didn't respond to, which we'll get into in a moment. But uh, but yeah, so a lot of people saw Hunger Games, and so it's always it's always delightful when we actually decide to talk about a movie that people have seen. So uh, hopefully, so uh, if you're listening to this and uh, you're not a regular listener of uh, More Than One Lesson, feel free to send us an email or a comment in the comment section. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Now. Uh, now you're 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 more familiar with these stories than I am at this point. I might you, be because you've you know delved into the books. Delved in. I'm sorry, dove. Oh, oh that's I, what I that dove into those. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's going. It's hard to summarize these, but let's give them a shot. All right. I'm going to throw it to you. How would you summarize? First off, maybe two or three sentences to set up because we are talking about a sequel here to set mm-hmm. us up for the sequel. And then one brief summary of the sequel. Okay. Two or three sentences to set it up. Um, fictional land, seemingly in the future, mm-hmm. where uh, children from one of the 12 sectors in this land are forced to fight to the death in a televised event to commemorate and sort of remind the people from those sectors of the uh, uprising that they uh, I guess of their uprising sometime Mm. before. Yes. So it's kind of a punishment for everyone and Katniss Everdeen the names in this one are kind of ridiculous, but oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of fun. But they're fun. They're fun yeah. to say. Yeah, Plutarch Heavensby is fun to say. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, Katniss Everdeen is from District 12, one of the poorer districts. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, I guess we sh- we'll have to say spoilers for the first Hunger Games. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, if you would like to see or read both of them without knowing what happens, this probably isn't the best episode to listen to. Yeah. Um, so just warning, we are going to talk about what happens in the first one in order to discuss what happens in the second one. Um, but uh, she and a boy from her district start to work together in the games. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, her younger sister is selected to be part of the games, but right. she volunteers in her sister's place. To take place. her place. Yes. And so then she is is in there, but she's very good with the bow, and so she's able to protect herself. And, uh, bow and arrow, not bow like Donatello used on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, I meant like a like a bow, like a oh, tie. oh, like tying a bow. Yes, yeah, she, she ties, is very good at that. She ties very good bows. You would be shocked how handy it comes <laughs> when in, it comes uh, to murder. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, if you just do do it tight enough, your problem solved. You do have to trick somebody into letting them tie, letting you tie a bow around yeah, their neck. Which is a, the way they work that in is genius. No, oh, yeah. Um, no, she, she and the, and the other boy from her district start to kind of work together, and then neither one of them wants to kill the other one, but they're playing things up for the cameras. Yes, act like they're in love yes. so that the people will be on their side, and then through kind of a trick are able to both survive even though it's supposed to be a fight to the death yes and this whole thing is orchestrated by the government it is a tyrannical fascistic government Mm -hmm. and and it's you know you you put forth the games as a punishment Mm -hmm. and it is certainly i mean people are very they people do mourn when their 
when their representatives, when their tributes, pardon me, mm-hmm. when their tributes are uh, killed in the games, but people are invested in them, they're excited about them. It's something that I think people view as fun. So it's odd. It, do, it, is not, it does not seem to be viewed as a punishment, mm-hmm. uh, at least not at this point. It's been going long enough that now it's just a tradition that people enjoy, even though it involves young people being killed, mm-hmm. um, which is, of course, barbaric. So, uh, so yeah, and really the, the theme that we're going to be talking about could apply to either the first or second film, but they really – they delve further into it in the second film. Yeah. Uh, in this one – uh, Katniss and uh, Pita, um, which is the name of the uh, the the boy that uh, that wins along with Katniss, uh, they are uh, huge celebrities as the uh, the winners of hung- of the Hunger Games often are, uh, and the they're they're such big celebrities in fact, and the way in which they won, which was on their terms, uh, it kind of the the president. Um, sees this as sort of undercutting his authority a little bit. Uh, and so he decides, all right, uh, I'm fine with these guys having one on their terms, but now they are going to do what I need them to do. Mm-hmm. They are going to work for the government because now, because I can do whatever I want to their families. Mm-hmm. And they have inspired a certain degree of, uh, rebellion in some of the poorer districts. And so the president is in the process of trying to put down that. And in the meantime, there's another Hunger Games, and this time it's the 75th anniversary, so it's going to involve uh, everybody uh, – they're selecting from past winners. Mm-hmm. And so now everybody that's in the Hunger Games is somebody that has won and thus is probably pretty lethal. Yeah. And so – With the possible – with the exception of some that are very – that are older. Yes, yes. And so, uh, so yeah, they all go in and – uh, but things are a little different this time. Now, uh, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and so one of the things, uh, Josh already mentioned the name, Plutarch Heavensby. He is the new uh, game designer. Mm-hmm. And there seems, and he works very directly with the president. And one of the things that he wants to do, uh, he understands that the best way to undercut uh, Katniss's uh, very public, uh, the, her beloved image that like people really like uh, what what they like about her. The best way to undercut that is not to kill her because then that makes her a martyr, but to actually uh, quote unquote make her one of us, which is make her uh, you know a very like one of the rich elite, and then people will just hate her eventually. And so there's a, a wedding that's going to be planned, and there's a a vi- what I think is a very brilliant bit of dialogue. It's actually it's probably this bit of dialogue that uh, made me want to do an episode about it, hmm. in which he talks about you need to have two things. You will. Ha- he's telling the president this. You know, you can have your executions and your public floggings in order to like break people's spirit, and w- so you'll show that publicly. But then you'll also show Katniss picking out her dress. And deciding what kind of cake she's going to have. And he says, you know, you show the cake, you show executions. You show the dress, you show floggings. You show, And so basically emphasizing how cut off she is. Mm-hmm. And really just making her seem out of touch. Uh, and so... Because people have come to take her as a symbol of this 
rebellion real or imagined and if he's able to separate her from that and say right. you know she is one of us she does not you know she is happily getting married and planning her wedding while you're being beaten and murdered yeah um and uh, there's a line here that uh, was in the trailer, and it's uh, Plutarch saying, We don't have to destroy her, just her image. Show them that she's one of us now. Let them rally behind that. They're going to hate her so much, they might just kill her for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about misdirection and distraction and um, management and propaganda, all so that it takes the heat off of the government and the president. And... And those that, are good elements that actually appear in the film, but aren't really in the book. Like Plutarch, really? is, Plutarch is not that big of a character in in that book. Um, I feel like they telegraph a little bit. What's they they do? Yes. Well, in the book, more so. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. To, to the point where I was like, oh, so uh, this one I don't want to spoil because probably yeah, we don't have to. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, there's an element of his character that I feel like it's given away early on in the book that that doesn't happen in the movie. And I like that they keep their cards a little bit closer to their chest in the film. Yeah, that's, um, there's hints, but yeah. And, and, you know, there's something going on with the character more than what you're seeing. But yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. I kind of like that they keep it a little bit more mysterious in the movie. And it's possibly because the, the books are uh, the books are, for, are written first person. They're mm-hmm. from Katniss's perspective. So you don't see all this stuff that happens behind the scenes and the game rooms and the plannings and things like that. So the scenes that happen between President Snow and, and Plutarch Heavensby are not in the books. All mm-hmm. those are just created for the movie. And I feel like they are excellent additions. They add yeah. to the... I feel like they add to the story, not, not take away. And actually, it's interesting. Um, the... So we'll we'll start getting into the film itself. We've we've already talked about a little bit what we're the theme we're going to talk about, which is misdirection and, and propaganda and that kind of thing. And we'll we'll get into that from a spiritual standpoint a little bit later. But in talking about the movies, uh, the first film I liked but didn't love. A lot of people loved it. There are things I didn't like about it. First off, I think that Gary Ross is a good producer and a good writer. I don't think he's that great of a director. I liked Pleasantville. It was fine. Seabiscuit was fine. I just feel like he doesn't have. He doesn't have a very distinct voice as a director, I think. And so I feel like he, from a stylistic standpoint, I think he borrows from other directors without quite realizing why he's doing something. Um, And so uh, you get a lot of shaky cam in the first film and at times when it may not make a great deal of sense to have it Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. And then... The other thing that really bothers me, but of course this one is just me. I don't think this is a flaw with the film. I think it's just a flaw with the the conception of how this was going to be made, which is, uh, you know, we are dealing with kids killing kids, you know, uh, in a very public setting, and it's pu- and it's gruesome and it's horrible. Nobody's getting shot. It's all stabbings and blunt instruments and stuff like that. And so. I am of the opinion, we've, we talked a few weeks ago about violence, and I feel like since we're dealing with pretty gruesome stuff, we should see gruesome things. Like, mm-hmm. really, for me, ideally, the story would be, the story would be rated R um, for intense graphic violence, um, because I think that would actually cause us to shy away from things a little bit more. Uh, but that's one thing. And the other thing is that uh, I feel like the, the movie 
actually bought into the false narrative because when you're in the games, there are the career tributes. This is people, these are uh, young people from the better off uh, districts or sectors, pardon me. Um, no, district is right. Is it district? Oh, okay. Uh, <clears throat> uh, people from the better off uh, districts that are, they've been training for the Hunger Games and they are going to go in and they are probably going to win because they are murderous and they have and this is what they want to do and the film sets this uh, and the film sets them up as like they're the real they're the big villains you know uh and it's like well actually they are victims of a system that teaches them to kill now the they're not as much of a victim as the people that are going to die but either way they're still young people being forced to be a part of this thing yeah, and so and this this one, both the film and the book, there's a key line mm-hmm. that is in this one, right? Yes, I think you wrote it down. We'll, yeah, we'll get to it a little bit okay, later. Yeah. Uh, and that, and so I feel like the film, the first film, actually kind of bought into the narrative that the government itself was putting out, which was let's root for Katniss and the and the the underdogs against the career tributes, and it's like no, this is tragic for everybody. But the film didn't seem to acknowledge that, which is why, actually, in this film, when it actually – and I, I, I will bring it up now. I believe it actually wound up being the, um, the sort of the tagline for the film, yeah. which is remember who the real enemy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is certainly something that we'll come back to a little bit later. Uh, but this film actually spends so much time focusing on – like bypassing the false narrative put forth by the government about the Hunger Games, going beyond that and emphasizing, yeah, there are the bigger threats in the games, but they are not the villain. They are not the enemy. The The government is the enemy. And they hit that so well with this film, which is why I'm, I'm, I mean, having not read the book, I'm fascinated that those Plutarch and President conversations never happened in the book because i feel like those go such a long way to emphasizing who is actually pulling the strings Mm -hmm. and how devious they can be Mm -hmm. um that oddly enough when i put these two movies together i actually am more okay with things that were for the things that uh is it for the things that were foregone or do you say forewent i don't think you say that i don't think so Oh well, the things that that uh, that uh, Gary Ross did not do that bothered me about the first one. It mm-hmm. actually doesn't bother me. It bothers me less now because now it actually serves to sort of it acts as a lead up to a payoff in the second film. You put them together, and suddenly it's like false narrative, false narrative, false narrative. Oh wait, now here's the actual villains. Yeah, uh, and so the frustration that I felt with the first film. I didn't. Uh, I didn't feel with this one, so I actually kind of retroactively became okay with certain things yeah. in the first film. That's how thoroughly this one explores uh, this this theme. And I think I feel like the film is is uh, it's willing to take some bigger risks in. Uh, I guess the way it treats the the rebellion and the violence and stuff. Like there are some earlier on in the film the when Katniss and Peeta before uh any before the next Hunger Games begin they're doing a tour of the whole country where they stop places and they speak and yeah. um a kind of violent riot scene breaks out at one of them that mm-hmm. 
it was pretty pretty dark considering that it's oh, yeah. a, that it's a you know uh, young adult fiction audience target audience yeah and i feel like it really ups the stakes that way yeah there's some pretty solid i mean i know you're a big fan of science fiction i am as well and when you're talking about a dystopian future about a fascistic government that pits people against one another in a public like there are a lot of sci-fi elements to that story totally and this and the and this one especially the way it explores it is pretty solid sci-fi yeah i think Um, so i mean it's not that's one of the things solaris or anything but yeah (laughs) yeah that's one of the things that I have liked about both the books and the movies. I, I, it's not, it's not strictly science fiction, but it it is there. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess like the way that it does it. It's sci- it's like sci fi fantasy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's really in many ways it's not that different than like a Star Wars or something mm-hmm. like that, where there's not a lot of science to it except science fiction. Okay, all right. So, uh, as listeners of battleship pretension maybe this show as well as you may know in uh, college i took a class called science fiction visions of a post-human future uh or as it said in the course catalog sci-fi viz of a post hum foot um and so uh and so we, uh, we talked a lot about like it's it technically qualifies as science fiction anytime it it's a, you know a film or a book or whatever suggests that we keep going along our certain course, this course, um, and due to technology or um, somebody's exploitation of technology, uh, society breaks down and then somebody uh, builds it back up in, in uh, fascistic or one could say like a uh, almost a mechanized uh, quality to it. And anytime mm-hmm. there's a central brain, which in this case is like the president, and all of these soldiers who do not question what they are doing. Yeah. And they are essentially robots, even if they aren't robots officially, yeah. I, that it still qualifies as, as science fiction. I think it's key to those, to those, uh, to, you know, the armies or police or whatever they, I think they're called the peacekeepers in the, okay. in the food in the film, which is a total, uh, 1984 type double speak thing. Yeah. Um, but their their uniforms cover their faces, so you can't see yeah. any of the details on their faces, and that makes them look more like robots and you know, yeah. less human. I mean, they de- they definitely have a stormtrooper quality to yeah. them as well, um, in every sense of the word. But uh, but yeah, and so there there's just a lot, and and also Francis Lawrence directed, and I feel like he's just a better director than Gary Ross. Uh, he directed Constantine, which I didn't see. Uh, though I've owned for a number of years because I got it for free. Uh, and then, But he directed I Am Legend, which is a film that I love. I feel like you can see the studio involvement at the end, but up until then it is a really solid science f- piece of science fiction with, I think, some of the best acting Will Smith has ever done, if not the best mm-hmm. acting. Um, did, you, did you ever see I Am Legend? Yeah, I did. I thought, I don't know, it's just Francis Lawrence, I think, has a very sure hand. Uh, where I, as I said earlier, I think Gary Ross does not. And so, um, so just tonally, the film just goes along and it, you just really feel like you've been put in this world and it's a Mm. world that admittedly was first set up visually by Gary Ross. So I can't, you know, I can't, uh, fault him for that. But, uh, but yeah, it's, and the other thing that I like is it would have been very easy to okay we're back in the hunger games i mean we're it's a solid hour before we're in the games at all but like 
It's like, all right, we're back in the Hunger Games. It would be very easy to just play into the narrative of the Hunger Games again. Be like, okay, it's all about survival. Now it's who are you going to trust? Who you gonna... It's like, no, that is kind of the constant. That's the thing that we've already seen. We're already kind of familiar with. Right. There's a couple of new. There's a couple new elements, like the fact that everybody in it has won before. There's different ages and that sort of thing, and and it's a different environment and people getting used to it. But the the essential nature of the game, we already kind of know it. And so, what happens? So the film, I think, wisely focuses on what's different this time. Yeah. And a deeper mystery. Like, there are things going on that are not totally explained. Character motivations that don't make a great deal of sense to, the, to our protagonist. Mm-hmm. So she spends her time focusing on that rather than focusing only on survival. That's right. important, of course. But she's done that before. So mm-hmm. rather than falling into the trap of just doing that again, I think it wisely just treats that as sort of a, uh, a central point from which to deviate. Mm-hmm. And... And I think that was uh, the wisest possible course of action. So, um, so you like that? You like the movie for the most part. I did. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, do you like the first one or the second one more? I think I like the second one better. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I felt like there was more. I feel like it had more weight to it, and I think the second story is a little bit more interesting because there's more elements to it. There are things in the first one. I, trying to remember if i felt this way watching the the movie i know reading the book even though it's a kind of a bad you know like an obviously bad circumstance Mm -hmm. um there were several moments throughout the book where i remember thinking well that's convenient like things would kind of happen that considering how bad and how bleak the rest of the situation is it's almost like it's, it seems almost as if she's keep trying to keep from writing herself into a corner by mm. just being like, oh, well, it, well, this worked out, actually. And yeah. Well, something gets bad. Well, it worked out, actually. Um, and it doesn't feel like that in, in this one, either the book or the movie in the second one. I feel like it's okay. genuinely like she can't get the things that she wants. And it, it's everything goes downhill in kind of every aspect. Like, yeah. Um, She's in danger both within the games because, to explain, uh, from the first movie, she's the only, she becomes the only girl who has ever won from their district. Mm. And so when the second movie comes about and they're picking from the existing uh, people, she's the only, she is the only female candidate. So she knows she's going back in. Yeah. Um, There's a, there's a an inherent fatalism to that when it's right. just like it's supposed to be random that's a big thing that's often said may the odds be ever in, in your favor yeah and it's like you're the only one yeah there are no odds right and they and it the film focuses nicely on that by highlighting the fact that like they're picking you know they're reaching into a a, an, a bowl that has one name in it and you can yeah. see that and you know it's hers and there's, yeah there's something like there are two men to choose from and one woman so mm-hmm. they they reach into a big fish, a big fish bowl with two names, mm-hmm. and they pick one. Then they go over and still reach into the fish bowl, even though there's only one name. There's something so it's such a, it's such a nice touch that they're still going through the process, the ritual even though and everything. Like it, it just shows you how I, I used the term mechanized earlier, just how mechanized the society is. Like. Mm-hmm. We can't deviate from it even when it's obvious yeah. there are no other names in this bowl. Yeah. 
And so just the fact that not only is she in danger that way, that she's forced to go back into that, like then she, you know, everyone there wants to kill her, um, in, in theory at least. And then she knows that in the real world, she, her, her family is threatened by the president because, you know, if she, if she does incite any kind of rebellion or even seem to become a symbol of that, whether she wants to be it or not, her family is, is in danger. Yeah. Um, then there's the whole, there's a love triangle between PETA, who she has to pretend that she's in love with for the sake of, excuse me, for the sake of winning the games in the first one. Um, and that's an image she has to keep up, even though she's not in love with him. She's in love with this other guy but then you know um, there's there's the element of like having to pretend to be in this relationship all the time does actually kind of stir up some kind of feelings and then so that that creates a tension there as well um so it just it sets up a lot of good tensions like good uh roadblocks for the character yeah and there's and i guess we'll we'll go and go ahead and get into the the acting because i think these movies you know, it's it's interesting. Um, so years ago, I interned for Larger Than Life Films, which, as it happens, is the film, the production company run by Gary Ross. Yeah. Um, and so part of my job as an intern was to go through various uh, publications and trade publications uh, looking for young adult novels, possibly a series – Maybe it's the first in what is meant to be a series and see what the potential is for Gary Ross to turn it into a movie. Uh, at the time we were putting out, we were, I say we, uh, I didn't have a big role <laughs> in this, uh, but we were working on a movie called Tale of Despero, which is a, a, an animated film that has been lost uh, in the memory of pop culture. Um, but it's interesting looking through that because clearly what was trying to happen was there's twi- there was Harry Potter and there was Twilight. Young adult novels, big, you know, a huge following that turned into big movies. Um, and so we were just always looking for that. And if you look at movies over the last few years, you've got like, what is it? Like The Vampire's Apprentice or The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I don't remember. <laughs> there's uh, there's one that came out that I don't even remember the name of. Something. Uh, that Percy Jackson thing? There's Percy Jackson, which there have actually been two movies of. Really? Yeah. Uh, there's yeah there there are many there are a lot of them a lot of them rise of the guardians the owls of gahuli uh hang on that's legends of the guardians oh i'm rise of the guardians something else is an animated movie that's actually pretty good oh um oh i know that yeah yeah, yeah, with santa claus and the easter bunny stuff It's, it's pretty solid um but uh but yeah and so it's interesting when I found out that Gary Ross had done Hunger Games and I hadn't really heard anything about Hunger Games. And then when I heard what it was, I was like, Oh, looks like he found his book yeah, and developed it in a way that very few other studios have done. Um, but so it's, so though Hunger Games is kind of fen- of a phenomenon in and of itself, it fits into a larger thing, mm-hmm. uh, a larger subgenre, which is, you know, young adult fiction being turned into a, a series of films that are very mm-hmm. profitable. And one thing that you will often find is a very strong central performance mm-hmm. and then a whole lot of f- very fun supporting performances by usually veteran actors. Um, and there'll be, 
characters that show up through all the films, but then there are also, here's a new character. Oh, now you can focus in on this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, Harry Potter, it was always, oh, who is, uh, who's the new Defense Against the art- Dark Arts teacher? Stuff like that. <laughs> and this time around, and, and that's what happens with these movies. You get, you know, you have Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss. You've got Liam Hemsworth. Like, they have a pretty strong central cast that doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. But then you also get, uh, you know, new... Uh, tributes, but then you also get uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as as Plutarch Heavensby. Yeah, so you Stanley get, Tucci as the uh, yeah. He's not new though. He was in he's the first not new. One. That's true. But yeah, um, so it's a nice mix of like there's a central cast and there's kind of this revolving door quality as well. I know Julianne Moore is going to show up in the next one in a fairly really? central role. Hmm. So um, and in and in all of these cases, maybe not so much Twilight because of course that's uh, bad movies based on bad books um but uh in all these cases it becomes a a very because these are heightened harry potter is fantasy this is sci-fi it's heightened and so you get to watch good actors have fun Hmm. and that to me is one of the big pleasures of the last movie and this movie is that they're having fun while also being very serious you know jennifer lawrence is an actress that i think has had a great career so far mm-hmm. uh though she was in um uh x-men first class and she plays a young mystique and it is not a good performance and mm. she's not written well so with mm. that one exception um i think she has shown in winter's bone and then Silver Linings Playbook. And then I haven't seen American Hustle, but I hear she's a lot of fun in it. Yeah. Uh, and then in the Hunger Games films, like she's shown that she's a, a woman, an actress of range. And yeah, totally. It is, it's entirely possible. Okay. I might be overstating when I say what I'm about to say. In fact, I'm almost positive I am. Okay. The, to my knowledge, there has only been one action series that has had a female uh, as an as a lead, uh, uh, lead character that can anchor that whole series. And, and it's not even necessarily an action series, but it is a fantastical series. And that is the alien series mm-hmm. with Sigourney Weaver as Ripley. She, she shows up in every film. She is the, she is the heart and soul of that series. And I think Katniss is in many ways, I think she will do for, a generation of, I think, young female moviegoers, she mm. will do what I think uh, Ripley did. Not that those movies were at all catered to younger audiences, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I feel like it's a character that we will talk about uh, in in the coming years as a strong central character. Yeah, I think so. That's good. Made all the stronger by the fact that Peta, played by Josh Hutcherson who I think his performance is fine. It's functional. It does the job. Mm. Um, his character is kind of the damsel in distress. Yeah. You know, he's a baker. <laughs> he is not aggressive. Mm-hmm. He's shorter than she is. Uh, yeah. And she often has to protect him. Yeah. And so it's, it's a neat role reversal and one that I, I think is, is very novel and it's fun to watch. Yeah. So. It's, it's more, uh, more empowering for women than uh, this year's masterpiece, Spring Breakers. Um, <laughs> I guess that's for Dan. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. Um, I didn't that's not it. totally just for Dan, though. Uh, hey, Dan, how's it going? Uh, but uh, bombs. 
<laughs> at Palms Dan, everyone. Um, there's a that that is one thing that other people. I mean, he didn't make that up. People have been saying that about the film that they they or I think Harmony Corinne has said about that film that he's trying to be empowering to women, which I disagree with in a lot of reasons. Um, that's a topic for another day, but and it's certainly more empowering than say Sucker Punch. Yeah, yeah. You know, in which Zack Snyder has said that he wanted to make a like a female empowerment type of film, right. also an action sci-fi fantasy type thing. Yeah. But I think this movie actually does it. Well, it, and not to say that this is necessarily the reason, but this is this one's written by a woman and the other two aren't. So Yeah. yeah. You know. And that's the thing. The so it's based on a book written by a woman, but then it was also cast in such a way as I mean there's no question that Winter's Bone is what got jennifer lawrence the film like there's no i feel like there's no question about it but by casting josh hutcherson Mm -hmm. from what i haven't read any of the books uh my wife has and from what she tells me Peta is very different in the books he's much bigger and he's more one could say manly uh they do play up the fact that he's supposed to be strong he's supposed to be able to like lift heavy things and that's like one one of his strengths is he had to carry around big sacks of flour when he was a baker and so that was like a you know and so, but with this, they cast somebody who looks like he could be, you know, compact and could still be strong, but is small mm. and does not seem like he, and he seems like he needs rescuing and he often does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a, it's, it's moments like those, which are brought forth both from casting, but also from the cast themselves that I, that I enjoy a great deal. Um, I'll bring up a, just a, one or two other people. Um, I've liked Woody Harrelson in both of these films. He plays a guy who is also a tribute uh, that is sort of the, acts as the mentor for these two people. And um, it's just a, it's a kind of a fun, funny, over the top performance. But you see underneath just a very, a, a very deep pain, and the character really does seem like he's suffering from uh, PTSD. Which I yeah. feel like you probably are when you get out of the Hunger Games, even if yeah. you survive. Um, and then I've been a big fan of Elizabeth Banks uh, in both films, um, but in this one especially, I think she does a great job. Yeah, because her character—I don't know what her official title is. You yeah. read the book, so I feel like you might you might remember. I don't remember if they say what her official title is, but she's essentially like she's the the uh, face of the capital for their district the capital is is the kind of the king district essentially mm-hmm. and um so she one of, one of the lines throughout all the books is that they they talk about the fashion in the capital being very over kind of over the top and they portray that well in the movies i think by yes. making uh, by really playing up this fashion where it's it's overdone makeup, it's kind of garish and things yeah. like that, and that she is one a character who exemplifies that. She's yeah. the way she dresses, the way her makeup is done, to the point that when how it took I had to get about halfway through the first movie before I realized, oh, that's Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. Um, and so especially in the first movie, she comes off as a character who is one of those people that's excited about the games and thinks it's something fun and doesn't think much of the fact that one of them's going to have to die. Well, maybe both of them will have to die. Um, and she seems to be sort of distanced from the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, 
I think it's a I think it's a very well used element in both the book and the movie in that here's this character who sort of represents the populace who enjoy this thing. Yeah. And is able to act like it's something fun, but And it's her job. Right, right. As well. But yeah. But throughout the film or throughout both the film and the book, um, as it becomes something personal to her, it starts to actually mean something a little bit more. Yeah. And that's something that both the film and the book are doing in general with people's attitude towards the games. I, I really like that scene where they uh, where they go on TV and a lot of them outspokenly talk about how they don't like the idea of having to go back in yeah. to the to the uh, to the games. And you know where before her character Effie had been one that seems to be excited about everything. Now she really is. She has genuine moments of of being upset about what happens and and being invested in them as people and not as much as just an entertainment. But it's still filtered through the character we've seen before, right? And that I think is what's brilliant about the performance. Yeah, because she still has to be that way because yeah. she still is the face of the capital, like I yeah. said, and. That's how she's been her whole life. Mm-hmm. Just upbeat. She, in many ways, she kind of seems like a like a publicist or like a like a media, like a PR person in mm-hmm. many ways. Like always has to put on a good face in in many ways. Um, and so she, that's just who she is. She's kind of like a wedding planner. She's <laughs> she's kind of like a wedding planner. Yes, <laughs> except in my experience, wedding planners tend to be a bit more horrendously off-putting um and so uh but there's a really wonderful scene in this film where i mean she really it's obvious she thinks katniss and and Peeta are going to die Mm -hmm. but she mentions gold that like oh because katniss has this little gold mockingjay pin and it's kind of her trademark and so she's like Katniss has the gold, so we should come up. We, we we should each wear something gold to show everybody that we're all part of a team. Mm-hmm. And it's such a nice moment because yeah. that's 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 about as into this as she can get. I, I mean, she's emotionally invested in these characters completely, mm-hmm. but this is how she shows it. There's no big emotional breakdown. She doesn't quote unquote break character. It's her showing solidarity in the way, in the only way she can. Yeah. And then when she actually provides them with, here's a gold bracelet for you, here's this, and I've got mine. And the, the idea that she does think of them as a team, mm-hmm. um, it really is like, these are films that I don't, I tend, I don't really find remarkably touching, but those are the moments that I find very, to be very, very touching. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I thought, and I think a lot of that is due to her performance, which mm. I just loved. Um, so I think we'll, we'll move on. Um, so by, uh, by and large, I, I would recommend this film. Uh, I'm not sure if I really recommended the first one. I think I said, if you're going to see it, sure. Why not? But mm. if you, I'm not going to try and talk anyone into it. Uh, but I think I would now so that you could get to this one. Yeah. Um, viewed, viewed together. I think they work really well. And now I'm really eager to see Francis Lawrence is going to direct the next two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll provide a nice, uh, transition, uh, not transition, but a, a nice, uh, consistency. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I'm eager to see how this series will look when it's all one thing. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah so you would you would recommend this film yeah series yeah okay so okay i'm trying to think if we should bring up yeah all right we'll we'll briefly bring up the the companion film uh i want to try and maybe get this done in like 15 20 minutes um the it's feasible um the companion film is a movie that I have loved for 10 years. It came out in 2003. It is called Shattered Glass. Now, fans of the show might remember that I have already used this film as a companion film. If you want to use this as proof that I'm running out of ideas, go right ahead. Don't think the thought has not crossed my mind. I'm going to say 20 times <laughs> since I came up with this. Uh, did the term fraud enter my mind? It did. Don't worry. I'm way ahead of you. That's way well, ahead of you. Well, that's uh, that's appropriate for this Indeed. Film. Indeed it is. Look at Josh coming in to uh, take my spot. Um, that's what's happening, right? Yeah. Okay. More than one lesson. Fair enough. Josh Long. Enjoy that. Josh's le- I'm changing it to Josh's Lessons. That's what it's called now. Josh, uh, Josh, tells, Josh tells a lesson. It's called Josh Tells a... Uh, uh, Josh Explains the Lessons. Josh explains it all. I'm, I'm workshopping it. I'm going to come up with something really good. Fair enough. Um, a, a in lesson, the comments section, a lesson from Josh before dying. Oh man, <laughs> you know what? You lost me, then you had me <laughs> there at the end. Um, so, Shattered Glass, written and directed by Billy Ray, who went on to uh, write and direct uh, Breach in 2007, which is a movie I think is wonderful. Uh, and has gone on to write a number of things, uh, including this year's Captain Phillips, which is, uh, at the moment, my favorite movie of the year. Um, the, uh, the story of Shattered Glass is, is a true story, and in many cases, uh, you'll, you'll, you tend to run across movies that are based on a true story, and they've taken some liberties. Uh, Billy Ray did not take a lot of liberties. Uh, in some cases, he just used specific transcripts because... It's a story in which a lot of journalists are involved, so a lot of their conversations are recorded. There's a lot of paper trail for that yeah. sort of thing. And so, and he thought the story was just so good on its own that he didn't really need to add much. Mm. Uh, there are times when he composited characters just for economy. Um, but it's the story of Stephen Glass, who worked for the New Republic in the late 90s and was very uh, popular, was very successful, started writing for some other magazines as well. He tended to write... Um, uh, personal interest type of stories, color, local colors. Yes, uh, and and he had a flair for the way that he wrote, and he just had a knack for finding interesting stories. Uh, and then it was revealed. Uh, it wasn't revealed. It was through very meticulous research by uh, other publications that he actually had made up. Uh, in some in some cases, uh, in most cases. Uh, the stories were just made up completely. Mm. Um, and then in other cases, he would make up some stuff uh, and then incorporate it, you know, incorporate some truth into it. Um, and the film is just about the story of Stephen Glass and his downfall. And I think it's wonderful. I'm, by and large, if you are familiar with who Hayden Christensen is at all, you're probably not a big fan of his. Um, because he played Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars films, uh, and I think people could look at that and say he's not a very good actor. Um, 
but I've seen, I think I've seen five total performances of his. I saw a movie called Life as a House, uh, which is not that great of a movie, but he, I think he's very good in it. Shattered Glass, which I think he's very, very good in. And I actually quite commend him for taking the role because there is a certain lack of vanity in playing the role, in playing a role that you know the, the viewers are going to specifically not like. And not like a not like a Jack Nicholson type villain, which is fun to like, uh, you know, fun to hate. Mm-hmm. This is a character that you will just despise. Mm-hmm. He's weaselly. He's manipulative. He's everything that you don't like because chances are, you might actually know somebody like him in real life. And I think that probably wouldn't sit well with the audience. And I there are a lot of people that just really hate Stephen Glass. <laughs> um, and so. Uh, so I, I, I actually applaud Hayden Christensen for taking the role right in the middle of his uh, Star Wars films. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so I didn't mean to get off on, uh, on the performance, but it is key. There are a number of key performances. Peter Sarsgaard plays Chuck Lane, the editor, who uh, finally uh, fires Stephen Glass uh, mm-hmm. and does some of the research. Um in 2003, when there were awards going on, uh, when it was awards season, uh, Peter Sarsgaard got a lot of buzz. He won some critics' awards. I believe he was nominated for a Golden Globe. A lot of people thought he was going to be nominated for an Oscar, and I would have been fine if that had happened. I think his performance is really wonderful. It's everything a supporting performance is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and the cast is uniformly good. You've got Chloe Savini. You've got uh, Rosario Dawson, Melanie Linsky. Uh, you've got Hank Azaria in a really good performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think of Hank Azaria, you probably think of, let's go ahead and say, just a number of over-the-top <laughs> type of things, even when he's uh, yeah. on screen. Uh, and then you've got Steve Zahn, who I'm always a fan of. I like Steve Zahn. So, um, so yeah, uh, before we go into sort of the, the thematic uh, elements of this and how, how on earth this film can... <laughs> Uh, link to Hunger Games Catching Fire, I'll throw it to Josh, who just saw the film today. Today. It's been hours only. What did you think of the movie? <laughs> I was throwing uh, it to you. Oh, I, 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 you had a question about it. Um, I, I liked it as a whole. I think it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting story, and <laughs> there's this weird doomed quality of the character that he, he won't give up when he has been caught like yeah. and he gets caught time and time again and you wonder it's one of those things that makes you wonder how this ever could have happened in real life i remember thinking about that about and a lot of people said that about compliance people are like this this could never really happen but it did really happen yeah and so you know i think the same thing about this one like how did no one how did no one say anything about this earlier like how did they get away with this for so how did he get away with this for so long yeah um and uh yeah, so that aspect of it is very interesting. The story that someone was able to, at a major news publication, just make up make up news stories for yeah. years. Um, but the fact that those are the most interesting moments, I think, to me, the fact that like when he's or the the fact that he comes to points where it is obvious that he's lying. And we, we kind of know, I think, pretty early on that he's not really telling the truth. Yeah. But uh, as they discover each new thing, 
he tries to come up with an excuse, but it's not a very good excuse. And then like that leads into it's that whole, Oh, what a tangled web we weave thing. Yeah. Um, where it's just, it gets more and more complicated and suddenly he's got to create a website for one of the things. And then he's got to, he involves his brother to pose as somebody. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, again, it's, it's, you can't keep up that line of, of, uh, uh, of deception and it's you know it it it, uh, it becomes obvious like it's too he, as much as he works at it as much as he does things like go and get his brother to pose as people and you know create email addresses that he can answer from and things like that it, it it's too much to do in such a way that's believable and the thing that gets me i recently rewatched the movie uh a few weeks ago um while I was working because I've seen it so many times at this point, I didn't really need to watch it. I just wanted, I tend to like movies about journalism. I don't know why, maybe because they're very dialogue heavy. Um, maybe. But, uh, and, and I, this is the first time I had this thought, which is what is the end game here? That someone that after, after being accused of lying this time and then this time and then this time that you'll finally get to a point where the person cannot accuse you of lying anymore and then you'll just go back to your regular job yeah where you're gonna keep lying and yeah. you expect no one to uh to catch you yeah. it's just fascinating i mean it's just the constant short game you know um and it's just uh that that to me is just in many ways that i find the film like just excruciating because even though i, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for the character like, I mean, we've all, I'm sure we've all lied at some point and we've tried to like stick to our story and just somebody just stays on us mm-hmm. and may, and maybe and we probably don't go to the lengths that he does, but, um, you know, that feeling of like getting caught in a lie, like that is a very, there's a lot of shame there. There's a lot of defensiveness. There's a lot of frustration, probably a great deal of self-hatred, mm-hmm. um, and, and he has all, moments where he has the opportunity to come clean, maybe yeah. with fewer circumstances or uh, fewer uh, consequences, but yeah. he chooses not to do so. Yeah, and it just and it just draws it out so much more, and it's just it's such a it's such a hard movie to watch. Um, but uh, but yeah, and I think I think we'll I think we'll move into the the thematics. Is it would, is it a movie that you would recommend to people? Um. I think so. I, I think, especially if you're interested in, like you said, like journalism, um, I think I think you would enjoy that. Um, it does have some good performances in there. I, I am actually not a, not a huge fan of Hayden Christensen's performance in this one. I think I just don't like him as an actor, and mm-hmm. maybe that's maybe that's me. But um, I feel like I want him to have more charisma as that character. Like I feel like I want to buy that that's part of what gets him where he gets to. Mm. Um, and maybe that's not, maybe that's not what the film's trying to say. And maybe that's not what the real guy was like. I don't really know the story, but, uh, but I definitely like Peter, Peter Sarsgaard. And I can't think of something that he's been in that I didn't like Yeah, that I saw. I assume I didn't like the green, uh, the green lantern. Uh, yeah. um, and you know what? It. Actually he played the whole reason I wanted to see it at all. Not that I have, but the whole reason I wanted to see it was because of, his casting in a character that I knew a little bit about and sounded mm-hmm. great. Yeah, that's that keeps happening with these movies is they get actors that I really like to watch to play 
the uh, the villains like Michael Shannon in the new Superman movie. Yeah. Like I'm I'm not really interested in the Superman movies in general. Um, but seeing Michael Shannon as a bad guy in a in something like a superhero movie sounds sounds pretty cool. There's sometimes when just a casting thing sounds neat. Yeah. Like there's a new HBO show coming out with where Woody Harrelson and uh Matthew, Matthew McConaughey play detectives together. I saw the billboard for that today and I was like, that sounds Have you seen any ads for it? No. Oh. I j- all I saw was the billboard and I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it <laughs> looks so awesome. I can't <laughs> wait. I cannot wait to see it. Yeah. Um yeah, and uh and incidentally, by the way, if uh and I believe you still have my DVD, uh this is actually something that I highly recommend. There's a commentary track with director Billy Ray and Chuck Lane, the character that Peter Sarsgaard played. The real life The person? real guy. Huh. And one of the things that they talk about, because you, you say that, and, and I think everybody who watches the movie, if you go into it knowing that Stephen Glass is lying, then anytime you see him pitch one of his stories, your first thought is like, how on earth do people think this is true? Um, and Chuck Lane, when he watches the movie, he's like, you know, when I watch this, I just get that just I just get that sinking feeling of like how on earth did we not see this? Hmm. He goes, but then you realize Stephen was not merely a coworker; he was your friend. We were all friends, and you do not assume that your friend is trying to deceive you. Hmm. And they play that up in the movie because there's different people have different responses to him and the one there, there's a group of people that are his friends and are always yeah. advocates for him and you can see them being blinded by their friendship with him yeah. friendship with him and he just and and a, he was just apparently such he had like some charisma but also he was just ingratiating mm-hmm. he just got you to like him and also he he tended to portray a certain vulnerability and people wanted to then protect him um, and so there's a lot going on with the character and his ability to manipulate people and their emotions. Manipulate, in many cases, good instincts in people and uses, you know, friendship, uh, protection. All these are good things that people feel towards one another. Uh, and his using that to his own gain is particularly insidious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Um, so one of the things, and I'll, I'll go ahead and use this. One of the things uh, that is notable, maybe one of the reasons that he got away with things, was that he happened to come around. He happened to be at his most successful when New Repu- when the New Republic was changing editors. Mm. He was changing it from the very popular Michael Kelly, who uh, was editor when Stephen Glass kind of came to prominence, and it went to the much less popular Chuck Lane. And what often happened, so when Chuck was zeroing in on Stephen and trying to figure out what was happening, Stephen would use Chuck as his scapegoat amongst the other members of the staff and say, mm-hmm. Chuck is just coming down on me because he knows I'm loyal. Uh, I was loyal to my previous editor, mm-hmm. you know? And just and so and P, the other staffers were already suspicious of Chuck Lane. They already didn't like him, and so uh, Stephen used that. And he also just used little things like um, uh, there is fact checking, of course, in uh, in any kind of 
news organization, but he used to be a fact checker. And so he knows how the system works. Yeah. And one of the things that he did is, and this is something that came that came comes about uh, as a function of the commentary, is that he was notorious for being really strict on other people's stories. Yeah, which is an interesting element, right? Because if he's if if I if I'm editing one of your scripts or something like that, or or, or something factual that you're supposed to, mm-hmm. and I'm like, hey, you know what? You got to cite this. You got to cite this. Certainly, you're not going to assume I'm lying. Yeah. How could you? How could you assume that? And also, he would then fake his notes. He would do all these things. And also, he just got people to like him. There are so he, there are so many levels. There are so many things that he did to get people on his side, so that he could get away with these things. Yeah. And so, and it was all it was all misdirection. It was all blaming Chuck Lane getting people to like him, getting people to focus on their own flaws in writing rather than focus on his. Mm-hmm. It's all misdirection and distraction. Um, and it goes back to that line in Hunger Games, uh, remember who the real enemy is. In this case, it's him. He is the enemy of what this publication is trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we are going to focus on right now is the idea of misdirection. Now, we have spoken in the past about uh, demons and the devil and that sort of thing. Uh, we've, I know that I have mentioned that I, te- I don't like to talk about that because I think there are a lot of Christians that focus in so much on the idea of spiritual warfare uh, that they don't really see anything else. And so, um, and I don't want to be that, but at the same time, I think maybe we do we go too far in the other direction. We don't talk about it enough. Hmm. And so, uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, about the things that I let distract me from the things that I should be doing and the things that I should be focusing on. And it's interesting because it's all small things. It's all, I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of them are very important, but, in in the in the long run when you think about it if you believe in god already you're in a big place like you're already thinking that all right there is a sentient being that created the universe and then if you believe in jesus that's giant as well because then this sentient being cares so much for each of us that he was willing to limit himself in the form of making him one of us so that he could live, live the life that none of us are living and then die the death that we deserve only to then be resurrected. So let, this is what we're talking about. And that thing is in that belief is inherently transformative and, and should give us a great deal of hope. And it does. And yet I know that I tend to let myself be distracted by this giant thing Think about it, as we've talked about before. We're talking about God, creator of the universe. If God loves you, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? But also, if God loves us, if if this being loves us, then does it really matter? Of course, it's important, yes. But in perspective, does it really matter that this person over here doesn't like us? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the ultimate version of taking things for granted you know like yeah. we can we can th- 
there are more obvious, smaller examples that even non-Christians, you know, that that is a common experience for everyone, Christian or not, where we're something like being unaware of how amazing it is the way that our bodies work or something like that, for instance. Like you don't think about it every, every, you don't think about it ever, like the amazing things that your body is doing. And then you like get mad if your finger gets cut or something like that. (laughs) You know, yeah. But on, like that's an example of being of focusing on small, stupid things without appreciating amazingly wonderful big things that are around us all the time. I mean, and, it could it could be as much as the idea of you live in the United States or you live in a you know industrialized country, a one could say a first world type of country, and there are people around the world that don't have the opportunities that you have and you live in poverty and that sort of thing. And yet we complain that our phone is going slow, you know, Mm -hmm. the internet in the palm of our hands, like, (laughs) and that it's going, it's like, Oh, I only have the iPhone four, you know, like that's the thing. I don't like to, I don't like to say like, Hey, first world problems. I don't like to say that, but it does help to keep things in perspective. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's a good ex- that that kind of it's a good idea to think in terms of like what we're taking for granted and and so, but it's an instinct. It's a natural instinct. Whatever we want. There's a Montgomery Burns quote where he says, hmm. where uh, Homer says like, "Ah, oh, Mr. Burns, you know, you're the richest guy I know." He goes, "Yes, but I'd trade it all for a little more." <laughs> it's like it's like that's about right like first off the the seeming fall, the seeming humility and then of course it's like i would trade what i have for every for everything i have and more um and so uh so i feel like that's it's a human instinct and it's one that i think satan really preys upon and mm-hmm. and that's the thing is i like i don't like this idea of course i think it's quite horrifying but um but there's a special kind of genius in getting us to focus on small things, constantly getting us to look over here, look over there, uh, you know, in, in shattered glass terms, like, oh, look at Chuck Lane. You know what? He does. He doesn't deserve this job. Oh, look over here. Like uh, your your facts aren't. To- oh, my facts aren't totally right. Oh, OK. Oh, look over here. Oh, you know, he's just he's just a confused kid, just constant mm-hmm. all the time. In the terms of Hunger Games, it's, hey, look over here. You know, she's uh, look at look at her dress. She's uh, she doesn't focus on you or look over here. Oh, it's the story of the career tributes versus the, you know, versus the underdogs. And at no point are you ever saying, Hey, wait a second. There's something bigger going on. Yeah. Why do we accept these, this terrible thing? And so I have a lot of things to read here and it should not surprise you that a good portion of them are from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, which I think is by far the most accessible of his books and one that if you have not read it, give it a read. It's a very good introduction to the way he writes. And it's also just kind of a fun and in, in my case, often a very convicting uh, look at this type of thing that we're talking about. It's yeah, about I, – well, go ahead. I was just going to say I find it very interesting that this book was uh, was one of David Foster Wallace's favorite books apparently. He listed that as one of his like – it may he may have listed it as his favorite book ever. That's very interesting, especially considering he he was not a Christian. So, hmm. I, it it certainly is unique. Uh, yeah. In its in its format, it's it's written in in letter form, uh, 
from one demon to another, uh, giving him advice on how best to tempt the human that he is associated with. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, I have a lot of quotes uh, from the book, and uh, these are quotes that have to do with not not telling the human there is no God. Nothing quite as big as that. It's mm-hmm. all small things. And so, um, so let's 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 knock these out quickly. There are three of them, and then we'll we'll keep going. So, okay, here's the first one. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly, and clever men trying to believe they are fools. And since what they are trying to believe may, in some cases, be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it, and we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. Focusing on uh, the idea of getting us asking the wrong questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, here's another one. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. Uh, and again, this is a demon writing to another demon. So in this case, the enemy is referring to God. Is that correct? I want to make sure I've got this right. Yes. I okay. So. Uh, so I'll repeat what I just said. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Again, focusing on what's going to happen, what's not happening as opposed to what we should be actively doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives with the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. All right. So, uh, and I will say this, um, if you want to use that little quote as a springboard into another C.S. Lewis book called The Great Divorce, mm. uh, which talks about heaven and hell, uh, that is a very good idea. Because uh, that is what that book is all about. Uh, but as I was looking at various things, um, uh, various quotes and stuff about uh, misdirection and distraction, um, I found this little section uh, that I felt might work well into the last thing that I just read, in which it says, uh, where everyone lives with the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Um all right, so this is from a website simply called Spiritual Inspiration. Uh, it's a few paragraphs, so I'll try to get through it quickly. <clears throat> and uh, this is going to focus in on the envy thing. And uh, as I've mentioned in the past, envy is something that I struggle a great deal with. I feel like there are a lot of things that I lack that I feel like other people have, and I wish that I had that. It, is, uh, it, is, it tends not to be possessions. It tends to be abilities, character traits, looks, whatever you want to call it. And so this hit me very specifically, and envy is, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Are you comfortable in your own skin? In other words, do you recognize yourself as the treasure God made you? Or are you constantly looking for approval and comparing yourself to a neighbor, coworker, or friend? Do you try to outdress them or or outperform them? Are you always looking for ways to one-up them? Friend, it's time to let all of that go. Comparison is a distraction. 
Comparison is a thief. It steals your time, energy, focus, and joy. You aren't here to impress anybody. You don't have to prove anything because you are God's special workmanship. He created you with a purpose for a purpose. You are empowered and equipped to do everything he's called you to do. If you will choose to stay free from a spirit of competition and just run your own race, not only will you enjoy your life more, but you'll see your gifts and talents come out to the full. You'll see his blessing and favor in a greater way, and you'll move forward into the life of victory he has in store. So, uh, I didn't, so I didn't mean this to be specifically about, uh, envy and competition, but I wanted to make this, uh, vaguely personal so that those of you have something you can, uh, use as an example. And, and everybody probably has something different, some other type of distraction, but it specifically says here, comparison is distraction. Mm-hmm. Looking at, I mean, it's, it's really no different than what we're talking about. It's God loves me, but that's not enough. Right. God because I don't have me. what this person has yeah. or because I don't look the way this person looks, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And in my case, it's almost always God has given me certain gifts, but who cares? Mm-hmm. These gifts are not valued by the world. I literally say the world. <laughs> I even use the term that the Bible uses as the thing that we should not value over God. <laughs> it seems like it should be staring you in the face. Yeah. Yeah. But just like, oh, nobody cares about these gifts that I have. And even then, I'm not that I'm not very good at them. This other person's better and blah, blah, blah. And eventually, you know, like it says in in screw tape letters, I spend so much time focusing on myself and what I don't have or where I could be better. Again, according to a standard that is not necessarily God's, that in the end, I wind up actually not going anywhere, not doing anything. Mm. Um, And that is the essence of distraction and what, okay. So I'm going to continue with uh, some of these things that I wrote down. Um, This is a line from shattered glass. Uh, He handed us fiction after fiction and we printed them as fact just because we found him entertaining. Um, And that's the thing is in my case, (laughs) my big distraction is envy. Envy is not entertaining. It's not fun. It is, horrible and exhausting. Um, but it keeps you busy. So that's good. Um, but that's the thing. So that, so my distraction, this doesn't really apply to, but your distraction could wind up being entertaining. It could be fun. And Mm -hmm. by focusing on that, you might be missing something much, much more insidious. You might not be focusing on who the enemy is. You might not be focusing on the things you should be doing. Um, I will bring this out. Uh, the, the, possible companion film for this for hunger games catching fire was uh uh, brian singer's the usual suspects in which you have a character who is bent on deceit and uses a lot of small details to do so Mm -hmm. uh and i will use this line that a lot of people know from the film maybe the most quotable line from the film Mm -hmm. the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist That's from a screenplay that won an Oscar, and that might be the line that won it an Oscar, because yeah. that is a brilliant line. That, that is good. That's one of those lines that I'm always like, that has to have been a like a proverb or something. Doesn't you know? it seem like, like it? And then you're like, no, that's, that's yeah. from The Usual Suspects. Yeah. Is that Chesterton? Is that uh, <laughs> yeah. you know Augustine? Um, sorry, is it Augustine or Augustine? I've heard both. I think... Which one do you say? I'd say Augustine. Okay. I think both are acceptable, but see, I might be thinking of the place in, there's a city in Florida called St. Augustine mm. and they 
I'm probably thinking way. about the place in Florida that I just found out about right now. Yeah. That's probably it. <laughs> but if they say the name of the place that way, you would think that's also the way you say the name of the person. But then there are places that they pronounce incorrectly, like San Pedro and... Uh, I would regular, uh, regularly on the drive from Springfield, Missouri to St. Louis, Missouri, I would pass through Lebanon, mm-hmm. spelled like Lebanon. Yeah. But that's not how we say it in Missouri. <laughs> and then we have Los Feliz out here. <laughs> I was working Which is with pronounced it. Los Feliz. Yeah. Which is But weird. it's Los Feliz, officially. Yeah. But if you say it the way it's supposed to be said, people, people can are get like, Los. what are you talking about? Yeah. Exactly. Like, we had a... I was working with the PA one time. I kept kept talking about Wilshire Boulevard. Hmm, yeah. And we were like, well, it's it's spelled that way, but that's not how you say it. Yeah. Um, Very anyway. Los Angeles makes no sense. <laughs> um but yeah, no, that it's such a brilliant idea and it's about the it's about it's about just how I'm going to say brilliant. I'm sorry to use such a positive term for the devil, but just how brilliant the devil is. Because while I recognize that the usual suspects is not prophecy, mm-hmm. um nor is it the gospel, uh there is an inherent truth in it. Like if you look at, uh, if you look at the Bible and what it says about Satan, like it's just the way he uses truth and mixes it in with lies. It's not like he won't try and say God is evil. You shouldn't worship God because at that point you're still thinking about God. And if you start focusing on God, even to hate him, eventually I think you will probably be faced with, his inherent goodness. Mm-hmm. So rather than do that, Satan distracts you by saying, there is no God. There's no, I'm even willing for you to not believe in me. If it means you're not believing in God. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's a lot of, that's self-sacrifice right there, <laughs> you know, in order to uh, achieve a horrible agenda. Um, and I feel like that, that actually, goes back to something this is i'm sorry that i'm spending so much time talking about the shattered glass commentary but one thing that chuck lane talks about and you you mentioned it that Stephen glass never gives in he never yeah fesses up and the way chuck lane describes it is he always falls back to the e the uh more easily defensible position mm-hmm. that okay i can't keep this level i can't keep my lie going at this level yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm going to cede a little bit of ground Mm-hmm. I will fall back to a position that I can defend a little bit more. And then if somebody fa- makes that go away, I won't just give in. I won't give up. I will just fall back. I will cede what the ground they've taken and I will defend ne- this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the idea of Satan distracting, like Satan saying like, oh, that, there, there's not even a God. Mm-hmm. That is ceding a certain degree of ground. Like that is, it. It see, there's no God, but also there's no Satan. Like Satan saying, I, even I don't exist. Mm-hmm. That seems counterintuitive, but it's actually a distraction that looks like he's he's seeding ground, right? Willing, you know, the idea of willing to lose a battle in order to uh, win a war because mm-hmm. nobody nobody's going to be like Satan's not going to say, "Hey, worship me," and you're like, "Well, all right." Fair enough. Sounds like a good idea. He's like, I've, I've heard, you know what? I've heard okay things about this Satan fella. <laughs> like, no one's going to say that. So mm-hmm. better instead to just say, 
don't worship me at all as long as you're not worshiping the other guy. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is to acknowledge that – to suggest that neither of us exist. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I feel like that is also misdirection, a very specific type of misdirection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a couple of uh, Bible verses that I want to read. Um, John 8, verses 43 and 44. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a lot of... The word lie shows up a lot there. (laughs) And I feel like maybe you should take note of that because the Bible <laughs> tends to repeat something, even if it's three times in one sentence. Then, yeah, I think maybe uh, sit up and take note. Um, and that's something that people have often had to tell me. And in fact, you have had to tell me from time to time uh, when I am getting down on myself in a very specific type of way. Uh, people have had to say that is a lie. And they don't merely mm. – and that's, that is helpful for me to hear. It's not – that's not true. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, a lie isn't true, but if something isn't true, I could merely be mistaken. Mm-hmm. But if someone says that's a lie, that mm-hmm. isn't that is something active that someone is doing to right. me. You're purposefully being deceived. Yes, and that is something that people have had to tell me. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, because uh, I'm very stubborn about the things that I am lied to about, <laughs> um, and it's. Uh, and that that really is what we need to think about when we're dealing with this. Like, and that's why that's really why I wanted to focus in on, you know, in the end, Stephen Glass is not this insidious, horrible monster. I mean, I hate to put it that way. He just he was a liar and mm-hmm. he was out for himself. But one of the things about him making up everything in his articles is that he actually wasn't actively hurting anybody <laughs> because everyone was made up. Yeah. Um, still unethical. Certainly, but and certainly went against the goal of the paper. Yeah. But I just I wanted an image of a liar and a manipulator. When we're talking about Hunger Games, the reason that I wanted to bring it up is because this is a clear cut example, especially with the character of the president. Mm -hmm. He will do anything. To take the heat off of himself so that he can stay in power he will kill people. He will torture people. He will imprison people. He will pit people against one another. And it's in that last part that he has found the most success. Because mm-hmm. if you're focusing on one another, you're not focusing on him. Yeah. And that is a specific type of evil. Mm-hmm. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about the devil. And I know that there's a lot of non-Christians that listen. And they probably don't like hearing all this devil speak. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's fine. Uh, get what you can out of this episode, I guess. (laughs) But for Christians, like, I think we've gotten very casual about the concept of the devil, but like, think of hunger games. How much do you hate president snow? Yeah. How much do you want him to get his comeuppance? Mm -hmm. The answer is probably a lot. Mm-hmm. Much as I enjoy watching Donald Sutherland. <laughs> um, that's what we're talking about. And so uh, that's why I wanted to bring it up. And so I'll bring this up uh, just to kind of hit home what we're talking about, but also maybe end up on uh, 
note of hope here. Uh, this is also from John, John 10.10. And you know what? I've read all of these, Josh. I'll let you read this last one. Okay. Uh, like you said, John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right. Thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. None of those are good. The, ter- the, the thing about the word destroy, it can never be seen in a good light. Mm-hmm. It's never seen as a positive, you know. Neither kill nor steal, really. Um, and so, by focusing in, by trying to give you guys an image of what Satan is and how he works, and going with President Snow, th- there is, in that character, he's in it only for himself, and he will kill and destroy and steal as much as he has to so that mm-hmm. he benefits. That's what we're talking about, as opposed to God and Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I do not believe that Katniss Everdeen is a Christ analogy. I do not think she is that. But it is worth noting that the thing that makes her most notable, and by the way, the thing that inspires the populace, is that she took the place of somebody else. Mm -hmm. She, her sister, it, it was all random. Katniss got out. She had the opportunity to not be a part of this. Mm-hmm. And then she willingly chose, knowing quite, knowing that, like, I'll do what I can, but I'm probably going to die. Yeah. And then it's worth noting that in the second film, PETA volunteers for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just gets people going. Yeah. That level, when dealing with a government that is so in, in, incredibly self-focused, mm-hmm. the idea of seeing somebody who has so much love that they are willing to give of themselves, that's enough to get people excited and actually get people to rebel mm-hmm. against this lying, cheating, destroying government. Yeah. And so I feel like if, if we, not just me and Josh, but also you, the listener, uh, if we focus on Christ's sacrifice and juxtapose it with the constant destruction of, and ill will of Satan knowing the types of tactics tactics that he will use and how successful they can be. Hopefully by comparing the two, we will recognize just how wonderful a thing it is that Christ has done for us. Yeah. And we can hopefully let that inspire us to not be so easily distracted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe that uh, maybe I ended on not a great note there. No, on on a good note, but like, let's hope we're not so easily distracted. Not not the greatest battle cry in the world, <laughs> but you know maybe I feel like maybe that's the most we can ask for uh, well, on a day to day basis. Yeah, because it's not an it's not an easy thing to just. Uh, it's easier said than done. You you could say it easy. You could say it in a more. Uh, in a more direct banner waving sort of way, something like, you know, stay free from distraction every day. Remember what's important, or something like that. Yeah. And all those are true, but they're easier said than done. And yeah. it is a it is a fight to stay from or to keep from being distracted. And it's, uh, you know, the devil uses it as a tactic because it works. If it didn't work, it wouldn't no. be it wouldn't be a thing. 
And I think I will end with uh, the tagline of the film, remember who the real enemy is. Mm -hmm. And that can actually be helpful when like, you know, when your spouse is bothering you, when you have a friend that's bothering you, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, when you get fired by a jerky boss or whatever, you're going to be angry at that person and that anger will probably be motivated. Like that's that that is uh, or, or justified. That's fine. But that's exactly the kind of thing that Satan can seize on, blow out of proportion, and before you know it, you are you are so self righteous that that per that you're like that person is one hundred percent wrong. I'm a hundred percent right, and just and you get and you can get fixated on that person. But remember, who the real enemy is. There's only one. There's only one being that is as deserving of your hate. That is totally deserving of your hate, and that is of course Satan. So okay. Good talk, Josh. Good talk. Well done. Thanks. You too. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> all right. We went long, but that's all right, because I thought we had a good uh, good thing there at the end. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, first off, I will say, as far as uh, episode wrap-up, uh, if you've made it this far, you are probably not bothered by the audio quality of these episodes, but over the last few weeks, I've become increasingly bothered by it. Uh there is a not necessarily a hiss, but there's a lot of noise in between comments. Um, and I'm going to be taking some steps in the future to reduce that. Uh, New Year's resolutions. New Year's. Absolutely. No question about it. Uh, I'm going to see what I can do about that. Hopefully, I'll be able to make it work so that this sounds as good as it possibly can. Uh, in the meantime, thank you all for your patience in regards to that. Uh I don't really have any other uh, announcements. Uh, just wanted to remind everybody that we will be taking Christmas week off. So you can, you know, so rather than listen to us, you can go and listen to your family or something. Um, I know that's what Josh is going to do. He's not going to be hanging out with me, having fun with me. He's got to go scampering back to his family. Sounds good. Just once again reminding me that I am just the low man on the totem pole. Sounds Get out like, of my office. Sounds John. like you're distracted, Tyler. <laughs> you know what? I think this one's justified. I think this one's God. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so, okay. Uh, you can email me, Tyler, morethanonelesson.com, or Josh, Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can go to morethanonelesson.com, as I said a moment ago, uh, and you can read various articles and listen to sermons, and you can shop in our store. Hey, last minute shopping on Amazon. There you go. Um, and then uh, you can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long, you can also uh, join our Facebook group. You can ask to join, and then I will approve you and approve of you. Mm. Sounds good. It's pretty good. <laughs> Having my approval is kind of the best thing. <laughs> so Josh is always on the cusp of losing it. I've, I've never had it. No, you've got it. That's why um, you're on the show. Just barely I have it, though. Just barely. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, I think that's about it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.